On Monday, 10th of April, 1889, phonologist Emery Gordon Meador was drinking at the Paddington Hotel in Collins Street, Melbourne. He returned to his shop at the Eastern Market to find a bunch of radishes tied to his shop front door. A short time later, someone was dead. Hi, I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. Welcome to Dead and Buried, a new fortnightly series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. We're not afraid to put on the white gloves ourselves and rifle through the city's dusty records and relics to find details others might have missed. Details that showcase a strange, lost Melbourne, illuminating our rich and gritty past. This week, we look at a business rivalry that got out of hand in the worst possible way. The story takes place at the Eastern Market in Melbourne. Never heard of it before? Well, that's because it no longer exists. Frank Cartwright was a circus performer, showman and entrepreneur of the eccentric. The turn of the 20th century saw Frank run a number of stores appealing to the more curious-minded clientele in the Eastern Market. Annie Cartwright, his wife and fellow circus performer, brought the crowds to their most successful venture as futurist Madame Zinger Lee. Thanks to the powers of the internet, Dead and Buried managed to track down and speak to Frank's great-grandson, Warren Maloney. He's a bit of a handful. Very attractive, short... So we actually uh, have a couple of photos of Frank here and to be honest, he's a pretty good looking guy. Yeah, he's a bit of a babe. Yeah. Well, the time, this would have been about 100, over 100 Turn years century, ago. Yeah. Looks like a bit of a hipster and uh, you can see these photos on our website. Frank's first job was pretty routine, working as a law clerk. Yeah, and as the story goes, one day, maybe fed up with the drudgery of paperwork, he lost it and threw an ink pot at his boss. And within a short time, he went and joined the circus, as you would. Gymnast, clown, um, acrobat. He wasn't long into this adventure when he met his future wife, Annie. And he notices a young girl, a young 14-year-old girl with her friend riding horseback. He's 21, 22, so they seem to have been in contact with each other. And allegedly, through leaving notes in the downpipe at the local hotel, and within a few weeks... The circus was in town for a few weeks. She not only rides bareback in the circus as a performer, she also rides off with him into the yonder. Annie and Frank travelled around Australia, living a nomadic life. Along the way, Annie would experience the heartbreak of four stillborn babies. The toughness of circus living had taken its toll on her, though fortunately one baby, Ruby, survived. After several years of circus living, the pair wound up in Melbourne. Frank rebranded himself under the stage name Frank Spencer Stevenson and he soon put his unconventional entrepreneurial skills to good use. He was good at publicising himself, good at publicising anything he was in and quite outrageous in the way he went about it. Importing a man-eating crocodile from Queensland, he tap-danced on a piece of wood at the very top of the dome inside the exhibition buildings to publicise one of his acts, went down the river in a makeshift raft drawn by six 
uh, large ducks. <laughs> he had two or three shops in a row by the time we get to 1899, which is part of this Easter market, this wondrous, fantastic place to be. Now, it's only fitting that Frank and Annie, with their background as circus types, would set up shop at the Easter market. It was a huge, sprawling market that occupied the corner of Burke and Exhibition Street in the city, up until it was demolished in 1960. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't a place where you could just go and pick up your groceries, though. It was more like the seedy entertainment hub of Melbourne. You know, you might go there on a Friday night and grab a pint and get an eyeful of the freak show while you're there, or maybe even get your fortune told by Madame Zinger Lee. Annie, being a, a showgirl, old showgirl herself, wasn't going to sit at home and, and let Frank have all the glamour. So she became the fortune teller, Madame Singalee. Frank had worked out that if you actually utilised the modern electricity wiring, which was coming in, and somehow you had a wire that went down the back of her, her blouse and into her hand, people got an incredible shock when <laughs> they greeted her. And that was part of the magic. Enter Midor. Next to them was a phrenologist. That was a man called Emery Gordon Meador. A phrenologist was someone who believed that by setting the contours of someone's skull, they could find out that person's intellectual or character traits. Emery was a large man, 16 stone, always wore a frock coat, top-hatted. And he seemed to be the sort of person that attracted the larrikins to, to make fun of him. Okay, so we actually have a photo of Midor here as well. He looks pretty interesting. Yeah, pretty strange-looking guy. I mean, I guess the guys out there can judge for themselves. We'll put this photo up as well, and you can take a look. You know, a photo doesn't say a whole lot, so we wanted to find out more. And this is where Lee began her Finding Midor mission. Yeah, not overly successfully, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So... Anyway, our good friend Midor here, we know that before Melbourne, he did have a fortune-telling shop in Ballarat where he went by the name of Emery Johnson Midor. Uh, And during his 10 years in Ballarat, we also found out that he assaulted somebody, was subsequently fined two pounds. Hmm. And after Ballarat, he set up shop in Trentham. And while there, he supposedly fell in love with a pretty prominent hotel mistress. And according to the newspaper and other sources, he got married to a big fanfare. But then she ran off with another guy. That's sad. Yeah, it is sad. But, you know, it could be a pack of lies because we know that he's lied a few times now, um, including the fact that, well, I mean, this could be a lie, but he told the town folk that he had 10 kids, which we have not been able to corroborate in any way. And in regards to his name, well, according to one newspaper report, he had told some folks that he was the son of a governor, surveyor, who ended up being the namesake of Port Pirie in Adelaide. But um, I searched all the governors and surveyors that had anything to do with Port Pirie, and they had no potential children that could be Midor. And to be honest, Port Pirie was named after a ship. (coughs) So (laughs) um, it it seems pretty likely that he did enjoy stretching the, the truth a bit. Well, I think it was a lot more easier to take on a different name. And I mean, this is the thing, I mean, we don't even know how to pronounce his name. So mm. everyone's got their own different version. So you, you might hear variations throughout the Midor, Madu. Madu. Yeah. But one thing that uh, came up pretty consistently in the historical records is that Midor liked to drink. And the morning of the incident was no different. 
The evidence suggests, and he says, that he'd had several bottles of champagne that day. He'd gone away from the shop. As he comes back towards the shop, he sees three radishes were stuffed under the, the nameplate. Now, that meant nothing to me, but to him, he seemed to suggest it was someone was taking fun of him in some way. He sees Annie sitting at the front of her shop with her young 10, 11-year-old nephew. He accuses her of, of doing it. He yells at her. Um, he pulls out the gun and he fires at her. He grazes her elbow and she reaches to try and stop him. In doing so, he pistol whips her with the gun so that part of her ear is dislodged or damaged and she falls to the ground. So Annie's on the ground. All the neighbours are screaming for Frank and Mita rushes back into his own shop. And then Frank appears. Frank comes running up. He doesn't see Annie. He thinks Annie's been taken in by Mita into his room and goes charging in. Frank is shot. And then at some stage after he's being shot, Mita uses a knife to virtually not quite behead him. One of the other shopkeepers, a guy called Freeman, who comes straight up to help, and there's a constable Boggers who's standing there not knowing what to do. He's petrified, obviously, of going in. Freeman grabs a piece of wood and goes in and attempts to, to talk him down, but Mita is hysterical and out of control and waving this knife around. Freeman suffers a cut right across his right eyeball, uh, which later caused him to lose the sight in that. The constable has now got some bravery and he comes in. Uh, Freeman's telling him to grab the pistol, which is still in the other hand. The constable's definitely a dope. One of the young kids comes in and takes the pistol from Mita, who's starting to calm down. Frank's dying and Mita's taken into custody. In the aftermath, his daughter Ruby arrives, just in time to see her father's body being carried away on a stretcher. Annie is taken to hospital and survives, but doesn't find out that Frank is dead until the following day. Mita is handcuffed by Constance Walders and Berkeley and placed in the Little Burke Street Watch House. trials were done slightly differently back then. First comes the coroner's inquest where the police and witnesses give evidence, including Annie. The coroner finds that Frank Cartwright died from hemorrhaging from the knife wound, but would have died from the bullet wounds anyway. The coroner's findings are that Mita is guilty of willful murder. He's then tried at the criminal court in Melbourne in June. Mita's lawyers don't dispute the fact that he did the deed, but argue that he's guilty for another reason, because he's insane. So, like sometimes happens today, the trial becomes a battle of the experts. But the jury at the first trial cannot agree on a verdict, so in July, he's retrialed for murder. Doctors called as witnesses all came up with different conclusions. It was the opinion of Dr Sterling that Meador was acting on an insane impulse when he attacked that day. He's very convinced by evidence given by Constable Wolgers that on first seeing Meador, he looked like a madman. Dr Morton is convinced, however, that at the time of the attack, Meador was suffering from what he describes as acute alcoholic mania He states, and I quote, A person does not know what he is doing. They will attack his best friends. They have an impulse to kill the first person they see. (laughs) 
okay. Well, that sounds like a pretty legitimate excuse. But uh, Dr. Creary, who was a witness called by the prosecution, he disagrees. He claims that he examined Meador three times after the incident. But what he found was a sane man with a well-balanced mind. And finally, we come to Dr. Andrew Shields, chief government medical officer who supervised Meador in jail. He testifies that he couldn't see any signs of alcoholic mania. Quite clearly, argues Shields, Meador knew the difference between right and wrong. But what did the jury think of all this? Well, this idea that Meador was suffering from alcoholic mania at the time, it sticks. And it's the reason why he is ultimately found not guilty of murdering Frank. So, alcoholic mania, huh? What does this mean exactly? Well, maybe in today's terms, that would kind of like be getting so drunk or so high that you wouldn't really know what you're doing. Been there before. (laughs) (laughs) But was this actually a valid defence and is it still a thing? Well, maybe it's a good time to hear from Yulia Mick, a criminal law barrister practising in Melbourne. Now, around this time, this was still an argument that was fairly regularly put to the courts. Nonetheless, the courts were becoming a little more sceptical than they had been previously to this argument. So you had to convince the court that you were not just drunk, not just really drunk, but so drunk that it actually affected your capacity to know what you were doing. It was possible to successfully argue that you could get so intoxicated that it rendered you temporarily insane and therefore you were not liable for your actions. And that leads us, broadly speaking, to the position that that we have today. And that is that if you want to argue that you're not criminally responsible for something because you were drunk at the time, it's going to be very difficult for you. Looking through the criminal trial brief for the case, there's definitely evidence that Mido had thought about killing the Cartwrights before. First we have Friedman, our man who got stabbed in the eye. Well, he was also one of Meador's few friends at the Eastern Market. Regardless, though, Friedman told the coroner's inquest that Meador had asked him for money that morning to buy a drink. Meador tells Friedman, and I'm going to quote using Meador's voice now, <clears throat> I am going mad. I will shoot those Stevenses. That's the alias the Cartwrights gave themselves. That's right. And secondly, another storeholder also gave evidence that a few days before the trial, he'd been in a friendly conversation with Meador. And during the conversation, Meador pointed in the direction of the Cartwright shops and said, and again, here's Meador's voice, you see that bugger over there, the skeleton of resurrection? I am the boy that will make a resurrection out of him. And I don't even know what that means. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty creepy, but... Uh, pretty grim. Pretty grim. <laughs> so that... Combined with the ongoing business rivalry, eh, makes the radishes look like a pretty random excuse. Writing from prison, Mita would later deny the evidence given by Friedman and others. So, he said, I never at any time said I would kill Stevens or anyone else, but in my terrible distress and torture of mind caused by the long-continued persecution to which I had been subjected, I on several occasions said, I must leave the market. I cannot bear this worry any longer. If I don't go, I am afraid that I shall do some mischief. Mita said he only stayed on at the market on the advice of friends. He said that, Had Stevens not rashly jumped into my office, he might, in all probability, be now living. Doesn't really sound like someone prepared to take any responsibility for their actions, does it? No, it doesn't sound like he really 
thinks that he did anything wrong. No, no, he's the victim. Yeah, definitely. But there's another angle to this that may have helped convince the jury of Mita's insanity, the fact that he practised and seemed to believe in fortune-telling. We wanted to find out more about fortune-telling in Australia at the time, what Melbourne society thought about it and the kinds of people it attracted. So we spoke with Dr Alana Piper, who's based at Griffith University in Brisbane. Alana specialises in historical crime and has written widely about fortune-telling. We met at Fortitude Valley Markets in Brisbane, which once upon a time was an area not unlike the eastern markets where Frank and Annie were based. Fortune-telling activity. And so here in Fortitude Valley there were quite a number of fortune-tellers operating both out of their own homes, from shop fronts, and here in the marketplace. Fortune-telling is important to this story uh, of this crime uh, and its subsequent trial because Medor ended up being found not guilty by reason of insanity. And the doctors who gave testimony cite Medor's belief in fortune-telling as one of the clearest indications that he is in fact insane. But Medor obviously saw himself very differently. He told the future but did so in his eyes as a man of science. So in his letters from prison, uh, Medor tries to make fortune-telling sound scientific. This was actually a common strategy among fortune-tellers who either try to defend their profession or defend themselves from prosecution on the grounds that they were scientific studiers. Uh, There were men who lectured or gave public demonstrations of things like palmistry and phrenology who were quite well regarded and that was sort of judged in a different way or seen as being something separate than fortune tellers. While Medor's efforts to convince others of his credibility appeared to have largely failed, not everyone involved in the mystic arts was as tarnished with the same brush. Spiritualism, the belief someone could communicate, and received spiritual guidance from the dead reached its peak in popularity at this time. Though it had its sceptics, Melbourne society looked at spiritualism very differently. Uh, In one of the doctor's testimony, when he is asked about the question of whether fortune-telling was an indicator of insanity and says yes it was and asked did he believe the same was true of spiritualism and says... No, in that case, he didn't consider it a sign of insanity because there were many well-to-do people who were practising spiritualists at that time. Fortune-telling was most often picked up by working-class people looking to make extra money, but as an entertainment, it was popular everywhere. Even though fortune-telling was a crime, it's only going on because there's obviously a huge demand for the service. It was quite an attractive means of earning money for women uh, whose employment opportunities at this time were, of course, very limited. They could earn uh, up to three to five pounds a week, it was suggested, as fortune tellers, uh, even practising it part-time. That was more than double what they could expect to earn as a domestic servant or a factory worker. So it's very attractive uh, as an occupation to working-class women. Some of them become so successful, it actually becomes a full-time occupation. Uh, In some cases, women's husbands were even quitting their jobs and acting as their wives' managers because they were so successful. That's kind of like how it was with Frank and Annie, because out of all of Frank's businesses at the market, Madame Zinger Lee was the star attraction. So as a fortune teller, Medor is somewhat unusual in that he is a man. The perceptions of male fortune tellers really varied. 
some were judged more harshly than women because it was seen as a feminine profession and so the men involved in it were sort of seen as not being real men. There was often rumours of men uh, and male fortune tellers making sexual advances uh, to their female clients. While fortune telling was popular, it was also despised by many. It was seen as backwards, irrational and harking back to paganism and other superstitious beliefs. In the period just after the market crime, opposition mounted against fortune-telling to the point that it was subjected to a series of crackdowns by the police. But as Alana explains, securing a prosecution wasn't straightforward. Apparently when men presented themselves to fortune-tellers, they'd immediately be suspicious that this could potentially be an undercover police officer. The means by which uh, the police eventually overcame this difficulty was to get women to go undercover on their behalf and uh, get the testimony that was needed. There are a couple of instances of uh, these women who are actually inspired to uh, take up full-time detective work. So while closing off opportunities for some women, prosecution of fortune tellers opened new doors for others. So getting back to Midor, even though he was found not guilty, he was held at the governor's pleasure, which is a way that they could keep him in jail instead of putting him in a mental institution, you know, on account of the fact that he almost cut somebody's head off. Yeah, that small thing. Yeah, that small thing. Well, he ended up appealing to the authorities to be released many times over the years, and he wrote a lot of sprawling letters. You can read those on our website. And Anyway, unbelievably, one of his appeal letters worked, and after 10 years in prison, he was released in 1906. By now, he's 67 years old and in failing health. So, Lee, did you find out eventually what happened to him as part of your Finding Meadow mission? I wish. Uh, we don't really know. It seems that he left jail and disappeared into thin air. There's no death certificate that we can find under the name of Meadow or any of his other name variations. We haven't been able to find a trace of him since, so if anybody out there knows or has heard anything, please let us know. We would be so happy. That would be so cool. It would be. As for Annie, following Frank's death, she never practised fortune-telling again. And I think what's really sad is that in spite of Frank's many ventures, there was little money left over for her. Yeah, she survived working the doors at theatres and other entertainment venues in Melbourne, such as the Waxworks Museum. But she actually involved herself in quite a lot of charity work as well. She seemed like a pretty courageous woman and, and it seems like she tried to make the best of things afterwards. You know, she had a big spirit. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that, you know, it's the legacy that she left people that I think sticks in, in everyone's minds. I have five photos of her. I'd love to be able to, to see her tell those stories. I'd love to be able to, to see her as singly telling the fortune telling yeah. that um, we won't and we can't. So that brings us to the end of our very first episode. Did you know there's an Australian lesbian gay archive right here in Melbourne? Next episode, we're going to be talking to the president of the archive. Graham Willett. And our other guest is theatre historian Mimi Colligan. They both have a wealth of knowledge about how clothing and gender roles could have power over people's lives in colonial Melbourne, from dying in jail to making their fortune. Join us then.
You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories and sign up to our mailing list for new story details. We'd love to hear your Melbourne history stories too, so drop us an email. Dead and Buried Podcast is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. We love helping people with historical research, so get in touch. Thank you.